Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Welcome back to the Trial and Medical Error podcast with myself, Brendan Lupitan, and my awesome, trustworthy partner, just the best dude, Greg Uniton. How you doing, Greg? Good. You're going to make me cry. Oh. Oh, good. Um, How are you? A little, little touchy <laughs> moment here. I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm I'm excited to talk about second installation of um, focus groups, virtual focus groups. So, you know that that last episode was all you know rah rah, get people to do it, low barrier of entry, encouraging, and so forth. And you know just kind of talking about the the basics of it, and how simple it is, and how easy it is to set up and get the people and and so forth. And I hope people took that to heart and people have tried running their first virtual focus group since last time. And uh, today, tell us what we're going to talk about as far as episode two is concerned on our uh, focus group journey. Well, now that we've talked about the nuts and bolts, I think we should talk a little bit more about the different types of focus groups that we typically run here at Lupitin and Uniton, the different purposes, which kind of dovetails into the different types for focus groups, how you can use them to analyze different aspects of case of the case, whether it's joint tort settlement or causation or the strength of your client uh, on the stand. So that's what we're going to try to tackle today. Yeah, and I think as a starting point, people should understand again that, I mean, there are certain mistakes you can make with a focus group. So trying to win it, you know, trying to slant it in your favor so everybody finds in your favor or, you know, haranguing the focus group participants to agree with your point when clearly they don't and things like that. But I always hear these stories and I'm like, who's actually doing that? That just sounds insane to me. But anyway, listener, don't do that. On that point though, is there a point in your case after you've run multiple focus groups and you think that you've really honed your case to, to what you, you think is, is going to give you the best chance of winning? Do you think there's a point where you would like to see favorable feedback from the participants in a focus group? Okay. So, you know, you and I talked about this yesterday a little bit, that fear of you get good response to your case. Because a lot of times you should be trying to set the case up, your presentation of it to a focus group that... You're trying to identify the problems, identify the landmines, and so you're slanting it, if anything, a little bit towards the defense. And because of that, there's almost an expectation that you should be, quote, losing your focus groups more than you should be winning them. And so you get a little paranoid sometimes if you get uh, positive feedback. And then the question is, all right, well, what if over time, and, and there's a whole bunch of different angles here. So, so there's one thing, which is if you do a good job and you and you really frame the case from a very defense-heavy perspective, and you get that negative feedback, while that's great, helps you identify the problems, it can kind of get into your mind a little bit like, oh, geez, maybe this case isn't as good as I thought it was. And you can get kind of down on it from your own focus groups, which is kind of crazy, but that certainly happened to me before. And I think that then rolls into what you're talking about, that over time, should your focus group, or hopefully be getting the focus group framed as you're making it sort of more balanced and balanced creating a situation where you're winning. And I suppose, yes, 
it's obviously maybe from like a mental perspective, it's good as you're going into trial to know that a lot of people agree with the key points and that when you put the defense arguments in context that the jury gets it, they don't find the defense arguments as strong and so forth. Whether you need to do that or not, I think is uh, sort of a personal choice. It's also a time choice and, you know, economics, if it's a smaller case, is it worth even putting in more money to do another focus group? But I think it is a good idea to kind of transition over time if you're going to do serial focus groups on a case. And I always think that's a good idea in any case of, you know, reasonable uh, value and merit to do that. And so you want those first cases to, you know, the first presentation to be really tough, you know, really difficult from your point of view, uh, find all the problems, all the, the ways that the jury hates your case, hates you, hates your client or whatever it is, and then iterate, fix, repair, patch. If there's more discovery you can do, you know, explore all that different stuff and come back and do another one with sort of explanations for some of the strongest defense points and see how that impacts people. And then, you know, you can get closer to trial and, and try very, you know, sort of even-handed, you know, with what you're going to say, what the defense is going to say, and both sides' responses to, you know, the respective arguments and see how it comes down. And hopefully, people are finding your favor. So I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to do it, but I don't think you have to. It's, it's really if you have the time and inclination and you want to spend the money to do so, then, then go for that. And I think we're talking about generally just getting a result from the focus group where they they think that your client should be awarded, you know, or receive a certain amount of compensation or, well, actually we wouldn't talk about specific amounts, but we're not just talking about positive feedback. Because I think in in every focus group, you are going to get some feedback that reinforces some of the evidence that you will be presenting in your case, right? And why that's important is because is you may not necessarily realize that that's the most important aspect of your case or in any of any importance for that matter. So, I mean, you just, we get such narrow tunnel vision in these cases and me especially, and I focus on things like medical proof, what's an expert going to say when you don't think about the big picture stuff that motivates juries, as we said before, juror proof. So I, I think that you do want to look for favorable feedback in any type of focus group, not so much as to whether or not you're ultimately going to win the case for your client, but just as to what is important to them. And of course, that kind of goes back to some of the overall arching principles that we discussed yesterday. What's important to focus group participants? Because that's what will be important to your juror. Yeah. And I think a few different points there uh, that come to mind as, as you went through that. You know, one, if you keep doing the same sort of type of focus group in your case, it you're going to fall victim to the the law of diminishing returns. You're going to just kind of keep hearing the same stuff. You're not going to learn a whole lot new, and so that kind of becomes counterproductive. So you want to be careful. So I, my thought is is uh, you know do a really tough one, you know, very defense oriented. Find all that stuff, and then do one that's a little bit more balanced, and and see how it's received. And then separate from that, you should be doing different issue-focused type projects. So, okay, you've done a couple focus groups with, you know, small group. And by the way, the, the type of focus groups that we're talking about, small number of people. I just did one yesterday afternoon. That was great. I got a ton out of it. But there was only three people there. With that few people, 
you know, pretty much never are these focus groups going to be highly predictive of whether you're going to win or lose a trial. I mean, they might reveal things that make you think, oh, we got a really strong case here in general, or we've got a really rough case here, but it's just too small, I think, to be particularly predictive one way or the other. So people should always keep that in mind when they're doing these smaller virtual focus groups. But after you get the, and we're going to get into a couple basic formats that people should and can use to really, you know, help their chances at trial and identify and improve different aspects of the trial. But after you do, you know, a tougher defense one and then a more even-handed one, if you still feel like there are aspects of the case that you have questions about, you should do more focus groups. You should do a witness prep one, see how people react to your client. Or, you know, maybe there's one particular issue it's a big picture issue. And, and so you're just going to do a project on that. You're just going to kind of dig into that particular issue and find out what people think and really uh, squeeze the orange to understand that issue and how you can address it one way or the other at trial rather than, well, let's squeeze the orange on this, on this issue. Squeeze you like an you orange for interrupting wit- <laughs> <laughs> How do you go about doing a witness prep focus group? Right. So as you know, we've we've had some really really successful witness preparation focus groups in the past. There's one particular case was really the first time that I ever did it was the, and he won't mind me saying this, he he was a beast and went through it. So our client in the Intertech vent-free wall heater case, the first trial you and I ever tried, and, and we got this phenomenal verdict on this case, and it was uh, such a wonderful experience. But great credit goes to our client, Dave, who was the owner of the company that got you know really screwed over by Intertech. And we knew his testimony about these various conversations that he had had with Intertech, with his manufacturer, with the different companies that he was trying to sell his products through were going to be integral and how he came off was going to be critical to our chances of success. And so Dave is a, you know, he he just is a, he's a big personality and he's a very smart and confident guy. Uh, but initially, I had my concerns that the jury, I don't know how they were going to react to him. And when we first showed his testimony, and it was just what you do is you do very simple testimony. You do maybe a 10-minute direct exam, super focused, and then you do a cross-exam of the person, very tight, and hit the main points and see how they respond to it, and then show that to uh, focus groupers and see how they respond. And what we would do is we would use I think they're called like Likert scales. So, you know, on a scale of one to 10, one being, uh, I can't stand this person. I don't believe anything they're saying. 10, I love them. I totally believe them and are in their favor. How do you rank them? And so we would show that. We would have the uh, focus groupers fill out those questionnaires. And uh, we would ask them questions like, if you were this person's lawyer, what would you do to improve their testimony? What did you like about their testimony? If you were the opposition, what would you do to exploit this person's testimony and so forth? And uh, just got tremendous feedback. And initially, you know, when we first showed Dave's practice testimony uh, to the jurors, they eviscerated him. And to his credit, because he's a really tough guy and and was really committed to getting his point across in the best light possible, he wanted to read the questionnaires and they were not very flattering. They were, they were, most of them were downright insulting. And he internalized the observations and corrections. He took on, you know, a lot of the suggestions that I provided him. 
and he would work on it and we would do it again and we would bring it back to another focus group and say, hey, what do you think about this person? And slowly we saw, I think we did, uh, you know, on that particular case, because it was so important to us, we did like four separate witness-specific focus groups and saw this steady progression of his testimony, how he came off, how he held himself, how he looked, how he answered and so forth improve until we had pretty solid scores by the end of it. And then at trial, he really came through and knocked out of the park and, and gave A++ testimony. And I think the interesting thing about that was there have been times where I feel, you know, we probably overprepared our clients with their testimony. And unfortunately, it came off sort of stunted or scripted at trial, which is certainly not what you're looking for. But with Dave in that case, and maybe it was just specific to him or something, but the way all the preparation came through, uh, it made a huge difference uh, in, in how his testimony came across at trial. So in any case where you have, uh, and, and I mean, come on, don't the majority of our trials turn a great deal on how much the jury feels that they like your client, they believe your client, and that your client is verdict or judgment worthy and, you know, same thing with the defendant. How much do they like them or not like them? And, and what's the kind of halo effect that everybody is demonstrating to the jury? And so the more that you can find ways, and the focus groups really help you. I mean, that, they tell you things like, you know, I didn't like the fact that he was saying, yeah, instead of yes. I didn't like the way he answered this question. He was, he, he was leaning back and he had his arm slung over a chair. He should be leaning forward and engaged. I don't like the way that he's dressed. He's not uh, as formal as he should be. If this is the owner of a company, he should be dressed such and such. And so then there's certain low-hanging fruit that you learn from these focus groups that you can easily make those modifications to bring the person in line with the sort of perception and view that you want that jury to have of them, which in reality is who they really are. And you're getting through that stress. You're getting through just these small things that are going to help your client make the best first impression. So that was a long explanation, and we've done it in other cases, but I, I find those witness preparation cases where if your client's not just an A-plus person, they're always going to get a lot of value. You're going to get a lot of value in doing a focus group where you show their testimony to a group of people and, and get, get feedback on what they like and what they didn't and what they would change. And of course, just the process of, of going through all that preparation and recording the testimony to play back for the focus group participants is, is just very, very beneficial in and of itself. It, it certainly makes your client, it makes you get serious about your preparation because you know it's going to be critiqued and evaluated by a group of people and you don't want to waste their time. What about other different types of focus groups beyond just the basic fact pattern focus group? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different types. And the reality is the the possibilities are, are somewhat limitless. I'm going to say they're, you know, infinite. But there's a lot of different ways that you can do focus groups. And, you know, back to the point I was making at the beginning, so long as, as you don't make a couple key mistakes in running your focus group, you're, you know, as even-handed as possible, you're not beating uh, jurors into certain answers or seeing the case from your point of view, you're always going to get value. You're always going to get something helpful of use from uh, these virtual focus groups every single time, no matter what. So in a two-hour project, you don't have to just make it all one thing. You can do a part of it is uh, witness preparation. So you show, you know, maybe you take half an hour of the two hours to show your client's testimony, have the people rank them, give notes, talk about it. 
And another part, you go through some of the uh, key exhibits in the case and see how people respond to it, what they mean to the, you know, and what were the problems, what was confusing, um, you know, is the exhibit actually favor the defense or it doesn't make the point that you're trying to, et cetera. But the basic focus groups that people should be considering doing that they're going to get the most value of is the first one is, is just the narrative focus group. And that is where you essentially craft a single fact pattern and you, what I call, kind of chunk it out. So you do your you know, initial spiel to everybody about what this is, what they're there to do. And then you tell them, I'm going to read you facts and I might show you some exhibits from a real case. And we're going to stop periodically and have conversations. So you're recording on Zoom and you'll read, you know, so say one of the cases I did yesterday in the focus group was some medical care that occurred over a three-day period. So we first talked about in the first chunk background of the parties then we talked about the first day of medical care, woman coming to the emergency room, and then we stopped. And then we sort of talked about it. What do you think? What questions do you have so far? What are you wondering about? What stuck out in your mind so far? Where do you think this case is going? What do you think happens given what you've heard so far? Does anything bother you about what you've heard so far? Things of that nature. And then just pivot off. You know, whatever people tell you, if they ask a question, ask them why they're asking that and explore that with them or have other participants answer the question for them and ask other participants, well, okay, Bill said this. How do you feel about that? What would be your response to you know, what, what they said in response to the facts we've heard so far, knowing that we're going to hear more facts? And you know, after you've kind of covered all the issues with that particular aspect of your timeline, you move on to the next chunk and you do it again. You move on to the next chunk and you're kind of, you know, processing and understanding how people are viewing the case. And one of the interesting things with those narrative focus groups is that sometimes you can change depending on how things occur. You can, well, you can always change the uh, series of events, the sequence, okay? So, for example, yesterday I chunked the discussion out over the three days of, of different medical care and these different visits to a hospital. Now, I can do another one where, say, I start with the end, okay? And I start with, you know, here's where this client is. This is what happened on the last day. And how do you think we got here? What do you think happened? And then we can go back and start to, to resequence it. And that can really affect the way that people process information, the way that they view the case. And that can help you figure out how best to present the evidence at trial conceivably. So anyway, that's, that's, one, you know, that's the narrative chunking format. And when you refer to, to timeline and the examples that you're giving, you're not referring to a demonstrative timeline. You're, are you referring to more of a larger timeline that includes separate parts or chunks of the medical record, for instance, if in a medical malpractice case? Well, I, I think both. Sometimes you just read it narratively and, and you can see the uh, participants taking notes and writing their own timeline. But a lot of times it's helpful for you to create a timeline yourself and for, to visually show things so you can throw a quick PowerPoint presentation together, uh, share screen, and kind of click through visually how things unpackage. And the interesting thing with that is a lot of these cases, as you know, and I know you're a big fan of timelines, especially in a lot of medical malpractice cases, you can start to create that timeline. And then just by using it during the focus group, you're going to get feedback on questions or confusing aspects of the timeline you've created. 
that's going to give you a lot of insight about the case. It's also going to give you a lot of insight about how, you know, your exhibit of the timeline can be improved on to get the points you're trying to make across more clearly and in a more digestible fashion than when you just try it yourself and hope for the best in a jury, you know, in a real trial for the first time. So both. Yesterday, I just basically read the chunks out and people were taking times. It was over three days. It was relatively simple. But in other cases, especially if there's a very specific series of events uh, that can get kind of convoluted and patient changes that occur, say, throughout a day or throughout a couple of days, the timelines can be really helpful to the jury to conceptualize, you know, how things unfolded. And that, let me just jump in real quick, dovetails into the point I made a moment ago, where, you know, your focus group doesn't have to just be one thing. And so you can, while you're, say, doing this, you know, narrative chunking type focus group, you can also test some exhibits, okay? Maybe you've created a timeline and you can talk to the group, hey, by the way, what do you think of the timeline? Is this helping make sense of it? How would you improve it? And so on and so forth. Or maybe there's pictures, maybe there are images or illustrations about the particular medical procedure or medical condition in, in question that you can show to the jury and ask them, just looking at this, what do you think this is? And does this help? What do you need to know about this to better understand the facts that we're talking about, what questions and so forth? And that's going to help you uh, realize which of your exhibits are most helpful, which ones need to be tweaked, which ones need to be you know, done away with. And you can incorporate that and get the best of multiple worlds during the course of one focus group. And I'll add, I think there are also opportunities to take certain parts of the evidence from the medical record, which might be central to your case, and use those in a focus group to figure out whether it's too much for a jury to understand in its native format, or whether different formats that you may have created as a demonstrative exhibit will better help the jury understand the test or the, the, the document, whatever that piece of medical evidence might be. Best way to explain this is to give you examples. We did this in a recent birth injury case where we showed the jury the key portions of the fetal heart monitor strips that were a big part of the case. And the focus group participants, by and large, did not understand in the time that we had together what the, the different signs and the red flags uh, were on a fetal heart monitor strip. They, they just couldn't interpret it with the instructions that we gave. And we, and we gave pretty detailed instructions, although somewhat basic and dumbed down in our fact pattern. Another example is an EKG strip. Again, notoriously, it's hard for a focus group participant to figure it out or a juror to figure it out during the course of a focus group or a trial. Hard for me sometimes to figure it out or took a long time. So there are ways you could adapt those, you know, the, the native format of an EKG strip, right? And make it appear in a way where the important parts that the jury needs to understand, like an ST depression or an ST elevation, where they pop out. And as long as they don't need to know everything about interpreting an EKG or fetal heart monitor strip. They're not going to provide care to patients in a hospital, but as long as you could find a way to express to the jury the key portions, that's important. And I think focus groups give you a great way to hone that and, and help you realize when you found the, the right mix or the right exhibit to get that key point from a complicated part of the medical record across. The more focus groups, and I mean, I can't even begin to count the number I've, I've done at this point in my career. But 
The main thing they always do is underscore how out of touch I am with reality. I think I know what people understand and what they don't. And then you present the case to the uh, jury and they maybe are confused about what seems like the most simple concepts. And then they, you know, intuitively, instantaneously grasp something that you're sitting there trying to, you know, present to them in the most rudimentary way. And it's critical to learn those things. So you're not going into trial and on the one hand, you're insulting the jury's intelligence because you're talking to them like they're an infant about some, you know, medical condition that they just naturally know and are familiar with. And on the other hand, you're not screwing up and losing them regarding some other critical aspect of the medical care that, you know, maybe we've just seen so much in our practice or what that, you know, seemed like common sense. But that never ceases to amaze me how wrong I get people's understanding about different aspects of, of medicine and, and any of the things that are maybe a little bit more complex. And I think that's hugely helpful. I mean, what was it, Keenan or Ball, those guys used to talk about what is the jury's sort of whiteboard? What do they know? You know, identifying what do most people totally understand from Jump Street about the uh, scenario in medicine that you're dealing with or, or whatever type of case it is. And then working from there and identifying the aspects of things that are not as clear and figuring out how best to communicate all to a real jury when you try the case. Yeah, really good point. Really good point. Any other types of focus groups that you could think of? For instance, let me, let me throw something out there. Have you ever conducted a focus group for the sole purpose of trying to determine whether to lead with causation in a case at trial or as opposed to negligence? I still haven't done that. I mean, I remember that was sort of like a in vogue suggestion, you know, start with, start with causation. And, and maybe that works in certain cases, but I have not gotten so specific in my focus groups to have identified a case where I thought that, you know, that was the best way to sequence the case. That said, certainly do focus groups in almost every case that we work on them help me sequence my opening statement? You know, where do I need to begin the story? Where do I need to frame the case from Jump Street regarding my rule and so forth? And where do I, you know, which of the defenses that, the, you know, the defense is raising are the key ones that I need to address and undermine an opening statement? I'm still sort of of the mind, I, I believe strongly in the focusing effect and the fact that, you know, I want as much as possible the jury focused on the actions or inactions of the defendants, not my clients at the beginning of the case. And so my opening is framed that way. Uh, our presentation of you know, testimony and evidence is inevitably almost framed that way unless, you know, there's, there's just scheduling issues and so forth and we have to call people out of order. But I'm pretty much always... You know, first few witnesses are all focused on establishing liability, focusing on the mistakes of the defendant, transitioning into causation and damages, and then ending with damages, testimony from the client, and, and so forth. So from a personal comfort level, I, I don't go that uh, lead causation first idea. Now, that said, there are certainly some other focus groups that are incredibly helpful that I would highly recommend people uh, that are jumping into this uh, tryout. So the other sort of, you know, big picture case analysis type focus group, and I'm sure you and I are butchering the names of these things. I mean, I've, I've listened to so many people talk about focus groups, and it seems like everybody calls them different things. But the other type, so the first one was that narrative chunking type focus group where you're kind of unpackaging sections of the 
of the case in a sequential order. And then at the end of that, you can have the, the jury deliberate. But another sort of classic format for a focus group that you're going to get a lot of value from, and this was the format that was recommended by David Ball's How to Do Your Own Focus Groups book that was, you know, written like 20-something years ago. And I'm not even sure you can, it's even in print anymore, but it's a great book if you can get your hands on it. And and he recommended, and, and this was the majority of the uh, focus groups I did for a long time, was essentially like the what I'll call the clopening. So the kind of closing opening type focus group. And so in this, it's much more like a mini mock trial. So the, you know, you give a very general statement of the case, like the type of case it is, who the parties are. And then you tell the uh, focus group participants that, you know, you're going to give uh, sort of a closing slash opening statement of the plaintiff's case. And you give a very kind of put your best arguments out there for the plaintiff for why they're going to win, why, you know, they've established their case and, and all of your best evidence on the plaintiff's side. And then the nice thing about this is historically, you could then have the focus groupers do a private questionnaire. So you find out what you tell them, no talking, basically, we're not going to discuss your reaction, your thoughts or anything about this, about what the plaintiffs have said so far, because we want to know privately right now how you feel about the case and so forth. And then you have give them a private questionnaire. And this is nice because now you, without the influence of other focus group jurors or the lawyer or anything, you find out how the different jurors are you know, perceiving and are thinking about the plaintiff case um, at that moment before they hear the defense case. After they complete the questionnaires, you move right into the defense clopening statement. So it's the response, it's all of the best arguments and defenses and evidence of the defense. And you do the same thing, you know, essentially, you know, no talking, we're not going to have a discussion yet, we're going to get to that. And so then you have them do a private questionnaire. Now that they've heard the defense out of the statement, how did that change things? What do they think about the case? You know, what's good, what's bad? What questions do they have? So now you have these, you know, independent, private, unfluenced, uninfluenced thoughts of the jurors from the plaintiff statement, the defense statement. You can take those and you can start to read them. And then what you do is you move in to a deliberation. And the nice thing about the, with a virtual focus group, when you do it via Zoom, is that, you know, in the olden days when we would do our focus groups all in person, when you had them deliberate, you'd set the video camera up and somebody might be cut off the screen, you barely hear them. The nice thing with the virtual focus groups is everybody's on the screen, everybody, you know, is recorded, you can hear them, you can see them, you can see their, you know, facial expressions and reactions to what's being said, what they're hearing, etc. And you can creep and listen and lurk in the background. So you can sign yourself off, but you can listen. Whereas before, you couldn't. You'd step out of the room. You didn't want to kind of sit there and and make people self-conscious. But now you can do that. You can listen to the different topics and the arguments and the key issues that came up during the deliberation. And obviously, that's going to be very helpful. But because you can listen to it in real time and take notes, when they're done deliberating, you sort of walk them through what was their final verdict? How did they reach it? What was their rationale for it? But because you also know some of the, what they discussed about, you can debrief them and probe them on, you know, the, some of the different issues that came up during the discussion. And, you know, I noticed, Bill, that Sally's argument on X uh, seemed to kind of uh, resonate with you or, you know, changed your mind a little bit. You know, can you tell me, 
you know, what it was about that argument or, or what came to mind that made you start to, you know, lean a little bit in her direction, whereas previously you were that that direction. And that's kind of, I mean, that that's a little bit of the gold in focus groups right there. So now you can look at group deliberation. You can see which way people wound up ultimately voting after group discussion, and you can compare it back to the private questionnaires. And so if you see a couple of the participants were initially privately leaning one direction, but after group deliberation, they come down and and go the other direction on the verdict. It, that's that's incredibly important to find out, like, what were the key issues? What were the arguments that were raised during deliberations that changed that person, that moved that person from one side over to the other? And so that's, you know, some of the really, think, effective and helpful uh, information you can gather from doing that type of clopening focus group. And then the last one, and I'll shut up for a second, Greg, is, and this is not, I shouldn't say the last one, but just another one that I highly recommend uh, people consider doing is uh, recording yourself doing an opening statement for the trial and then showing that and having somebody else do it. Like, you, you know, I would never do a virtual focus group and say, and hey, everybody, now you're going to watch an opening statement from me. And then I want you to tell me to my face, you know, how bad it sucked. You know, you don't want to do that. So I would, you know, have you do it. And I, I do the opening and you show it or Maggie shows it or something. Or maybe I just get somebody completely unassociated with our firm and have them do it. But that's really helpful because then, I mean, you know, we all know the importance of opening statements and so forth. And that sort of like the witness preparation focus group we talked about is terrific for identifying, you know, maybe annoying body, you know, language issues you're doing, maybe dress code, facial expressions, um, how you're holding yourself. Are you saying um too much or some other crutch word? And then the messaging, you know, did they get it? Uh, what would they recommend? What did they like? What didn't they like? What made sense? What didn't make sense? And then that can massively help you hone your uh, opening statement for when you actually give it. And of course, it's great for just practicing preparation, uh, getting ready for your opening uh, when it comes time to do so at trial. Awesome. You know, those that gives you, gives the, the listeners out there so many options you know, throughout the life of a, a lawsuit for really enhancing their knowledge of what a jury might do and, and refining their case. So can you share with us some of the interesting takeaways that you've uh, received from different focus groups over the years, some that might stand out, you know, whether it's in a specific case or just in general? Yeah, I mean, there have been so many over the years, it's, you know, it's hard to kind of catalog all of them. But I'll give you an example from, and a lot of the times it's not necessarily an issue that you hadn't thought of, but it's the way that people are thinking about a given issue. So going back to that Intertech case, which involved uh, these vent-free wall heaters that had to be uh, tested to and comply with a very specific safety standard in the United States, but the testing in this particular case had been done at a Chinese, in China, uh, laboratory. And the manufacturer that our client had worked with was a Chinese manufacturer. And what we found out, the, the general perception when we just told the case and, you know, you know, look, David is a, a U.S. company and proprietor, but he had the heaters made in China, tested in China, and then shipped over here. 
there was a, a strong sentiment of essentially, you know, well, you know, he made the decision to uh, do business in China and you get what you pay for. And there was this perception that Chinese manufacturer was cheaper and lower quality, and that really cut against David and his case. But the reality of the situation is that all of the best uh, manufacturers of these heaters, these products, were in China. And that David, as we you know dug into it, had explored having them manufactured here in the United States. But the reality was that that particular industry just really wasn't here. And, and there, were not, there were not manufacturers in the United States that had, you know, the knowledge and the history building these types of products as did the Chinese. And that was a big reason why he did what he did. So then we were able to incorporate into his testimony an, an honest explanation that the reason that he chose to have the heaters built in China was because that was the best and safest place to do so. That's where all of his competitors had tried to do so. And I think we were even able to, you know, point to that it would have been less safe, you know, had he tried to have them manufactured at a facility in the U.S. that really didn't have experience building these things. So that that was one. We sort of knew that Chinese manufacturing, you know, might be an issue, but figuring out how it was perceived and then digging in and understanding the real truth behind the issue, you know, helped us uh, have David, you know, tell the truth but one that we may not have really dug into otherwise. And I think that was very compelling and helpful at trial. And it turned essentially a landmine into something that really benefited and showed David to be a very careful business person, which was the image that was true, accurate, and what we wanted to convey to the jury. And there's a million other examples. I don't know. I mean, you've got to have some that come to mind for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. But, you know, I, I just had an interesting thought while you were talking about David's case, and that is, I think it's important to talk about how you acquire takeaways, how we acquire takeaways from a focus group, because it's you know it seems like an obvious question, uh, with a simple question with an obvious answer, right? You just just listen to what they say, right? But I think there's an element to this uh, where it's it's kind of like a movie. You have to you, know, you watch it once, and you might miss a lot of things. And some people like to watch movies or read books for that matter over and over again because they pick up new things every time. Personally, I, I don't watch focus groups over and over in terms of what we've recorded. I might read you know, questionnaires over and over back in the day when we did that more frequently. But I think there is a limitation in, in our eyes and in our minds. Of course, it's like confirmation bias, right? Like we're, we're looking for these folks to kind of tell us what we want to hear and then if, if they don't and they give us something that we think, oh, I didn't think of that and you know, I could really use that, we kind of gravitate towards that little nugget and, and think that's the best thing we're going to get out of this focus group, right? When really th there may be, if you just kind of read it, the, the questionnaires or watch the focus group over and over again, go back and look at your notes over and over again, you start to realize that the feedback that you're getting is more value than you may more valuable than you initially thought. Do you know what I mean? And, and there's it's, it's because you have to open your mind to just how different people think, how you know potential jurors think. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I think there's there's a lot of wisdom in what you just brought up, which is you know focus groups. If you open your mind, like you just said, to it, 
and you go in with an open mind and not just looking to hear what you already know are an amazing tool for helping you avoid the traps that confirmation bias gets us into. Because what happens is we go in and we have our own unique view of the case or a particular issue. And then the jury talks about it and they're hearing it for the first time and, and they're hearing the facts you put together and and they're, you know, your, your gut reaction a lot of times when they say stuff is like, oh, how stupid or that doesn't make any sense. But when you take a step back and you say, no, wait a second, wait, there was a reason why it struck that person that way. And may, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I misunderstood what's happening here. I think a good example, I'm trying to remember what the, the perfect one was, but in preparation for the compartment syndrome trial that unfortunately didn't go our way a few months ago, but we did some focus groups in um, that particular issue. And one of the things that was very counterintuitive was there, there was an issue where our client had you know, written notes about what he and his fiance contended happened over this critical weekend. And they wrote it you know, a few days after the fact. And initially, we thought, man, that's like really helpful to us because they documented it. It's a piece of written information uh, close in time to the events that are going to support what they're thinking. And so, you know, naturally, my view is, oh, no, you know, that's going to be a great piece of evidence. We're going to you know, maybe even lead with that. Here we do the focus group, come to find out that a large portion of the population felt that that, that note-taking was sort of, not, I don't want to say nefarious, but, but sort of setting up, a, you know, setting up a, a lawsuit. And so was perceived as biased and very slanted in favor of them and was actually counterproductive to um, our claims. And so I think that's a small example of what you can discover from, you know, running a piece of, uh, of evidence by a group of people and finding out that they view it very differently than you do. And if there's, you know, several of them, and these are everyday people just like jurors, and, and you know, we've got our lawyer brains, you've got to take a step back and say, I might be wrong about what I was thinking. Now, you might not be, and you got to trust your instincts and intuition, but it's just a really, you're right, it's a, it's a great mechanism, focus groups are, for helping us take a step back and get out of our, our cognitive biases, I think, that develop over the course of the case. You know, I also think, and you know, just to uh, go back to examples of takeaways, I think the focus groups are an excellent way to think of other ways to put the defenses in context, you know, ways that you may not have thought about. I think we, we have a tendency when we're getting ready to trial for trial to identify the two or three ways we're going to put each defense in context or maybe one or two ways. And then we stick with that. You know, we think it's great. But the focus group could could help us understand something that's much more common sense. Uh, and, I, and I mean common sense as separate from what maybe your, your medical experts are giving you. An example, a case we tried a few years ago involving a bowel duct injury for a laparoscopic gallbladder removal. And one of the defenses in the case was that, oh, she must have had an anomalous anatomy meaning that her bile duct and her common bile duct and her, the artery, which is escaping me right now, which I should remember, we haven't handled a case like that in a while. Hepatic but, artery? You know, not the hepatic artery, the other one. Save that for <laughs> another episode. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, the theory is that it wasn't in the right place. That, you know, it, she had an extra duct uh, where, where it shouldn't have been, right? And that's, that's why 
the doctor cut the wrong structure. He ended up cutting the common bowel duct. It's the cystic duct. That's it. The cystic duct and the cystic artery is what you need to identify first. So, you know, we had this whole theory that we're going to confront that. We're going to put that in context by saying an anomalous or aberrant anatomy for the uh, bowel duct system is more the norm rather than the exception. And surgeons need to understand when they go in there that they may not see the cystic artery in the in the cystic duct exactly where they should be. They may see something unusual. Well, Jer, a focus group participant, said to us, well, if the doctor had performed the surgery within the standard of care by performing what's tri- called the triangle of Calot, and they clear out this... Uh, critical view of safety where they could see all of the structures and the structures that they should cut, then the doctor would have seen that it was an anomalous anomalous anatomy. And, and that's just such an obvious response, right? Don't So we didn't have to lead with, oh, well, you should have known it could have been anomalous. You tie it in to the departure from the standard of care. And I, I thought that was really genius. And, uh, you know, so that... That's one way, the, the big overview there is using the focus group to determine how you're going to put the defenses into context and undermine those defenses. Another way is to evaluate the strength of your case on causation. And in a medical malpractice case especially, we know that causation can be the weak link. And it's often the area that the defense attacks first and foremost to try to, to, uh, to win their case for the defense. With in Pennsylvania, at least, we have the increased risk of harm standard, which we often rely upon to make out our causation case. And I think that, at least personally, I over-rely on it sometimes. I get a little overconfident, maybe, in the increased risk of harm standard. Of course, there are cases like you know, cancer delayed diagnosis of cancer cases where you you have to rely on that. There's really no other way. But in, in other contexts, it may not be enough for the jury to give you that causation on increased risk of harm. Perfect example is a focus group we did in a case involving a man who had recently had an acute coronary syndrome. He was actually still in the hospital awaiting the cabbage procedure, right? He was going to have a a bypass procedure. And they did not put him on a heart monitor. He ended up having an event and uh, that led to cardiac arrest and his death. He was found pulseless. And the whole theory of the case is that had this patient been on a heart monitor, as he should have been, telemetry would have picked up on abnormal heart rhythms uh, or the vital signs w- would have shown a trend that was going in the wrong direction towards cardiopulmonary collapse. And a focus group member said something to the effect of, well, we'll, we'll never know if the heart monitor was there, it would have helped the patient. We just don't know what it, what it would have shown. So and, and the only way to combat that medically is to go into a long, detailed description by a cardiologist about the warning signs for a cardiac arrest in a patient who's having an acute coronary syndrome. And if the focus group participants aren't buying it or can't buy it because it's just you know not enough to overcome their gut feeling, then you need to know that in advance. So I think you could really use these focus groups to understand whether gut feelings are going to drive causation or whether the jury can be open-minded enough and is capable to understand your causation argument from a medical standpoint. Yeah, and I, I mean, we could go on and on about you know the, the unique 
observations and takes that focus groups have shared with us that that totally change the way we look at a given issue or we look at the case in general and, and how we're going to present it. I just want to, you know, get towards the end of this episode and hit a couple of the what I'll say kind of maybe double double sides or hidden benefits of focus groups that are not, you know, in addition to all the other amazing aspects of focus groups that we've been talking about for these two episodes. So number one, you know, and this kind of goes back to what I talked about in in the prior episode, which is there's just the benefit of preparing your case, just putting pen to paper and and articulating what the case is actually about, what the defenses actually are compared to the just kind of the sense you have in your brain that's just kind of banging around in there with thoughts not fully formed and getting it down on paper uh, or, or speaking it, you know, helps you just doing that. Forget what the focus groupers then tell you about it, but just doing that helps you see the case so much more clearly, the the good parts and the bad parts. And, you know, just forces you to go back and review the file and the and the medical records that much more closely, which inevitably means you're going to see things that you had not observed or not considered the relevance of beforehand. So there's just that huge benefit. Then there's the benefit of you do the focus group and you are having a conversation with people, not unlike what you should be doing and thinking about how you're going to present it to a jury. But here, a lot of the times you get in the jury, we get all like, you know, I'm going to, you know, just uh, like be, you know, just force this on these people. And the more that you do the focus group, the more that you get comfortable in just having a conversation, matter of fact, discussing these issues and the issues in that particular case and and talking about the specific terms and words and phrases and issues, the more comfortable you're going to be and inevitably are when you go and have to try uh, the case. And whether that's, you know, voir dire and, you know, jury selection, but it's just going to overall help the case. Some other hidden benefit, did you want to jump in there? No, I was I was just going to put a rubber, uh, not a rubber stamp, but a, an official stamp to what you just said. I was thinking of the brand case again, <laughs> yeah, right. and the rubber stamp. You know, if you were putting on a theater production, right, you wouldn't just, you know, tell, tell everyone to learn their lines and then go out there and, on the day of the performance in front of the audience and and have them do this, the, the production, you know, and you have dress rehearsals. And, and I think that's a a really good way to look at focus groups, the way you just described it. They're basically dress rehearsals. hundred percent. And it's, uh, I think it was Michael Cowan on Trial Lawyer Nation said, you know, on, on, I think he said it a few different times, like we prepare and do all these different things and think about all this different stuff. But if you were to imagine, you know, and, and a trial is theater, it's a, you know, it's a morality play. And, you know, but, but most lawyers, ourselves included, are not doing the rehearsal like, you know, like a play or a musical. You know, they 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 practice, they rehearse over and over and over again. And you know, I mean, obviously, you can't do that for trial because there's always that, you know, sort of um, it's fluid. It's it's never going to be the structured symphony that that you imagine it would be. But that preparation, muscle memory, talking memory is going to provide so much benefit overall and your ability to be flexible with the changes that are inevitably going to come during the course of the trial and the unforeseen stuff. But you're right, that that dress rehearsal component of it is huge. A couple other key points. I, I'm, I, I've literally gotten referrals, a number of referrals from focus groupers. And, you know, because, look, they, they then know that we are the type of lawyers that care about our cases enough to do focus groups, to go out and talk to people from the public about our case to find out what's good, what's bad. They also hear about the types of cases that we're handling. And I'm not saying you should make, you know, focus groups part of your marketing plan. I'm just saying that there is that benefit of it. I've, I've had a number of focus group cases referred to the firm 
you know, from prior focus group participants. Another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we don't do this too often. I've done it a couple of times, but you can use uh, focus group clips very effectively as part of mediation and settlement packages. And there's a, there's a double uh, benefit. Um, there's the obvious, like you pull out great clip of jurors talking about the defense's big defense argument and just eviscerating it and saying how stupid it is or, you know, talking about a key point that, you know, people are going to find in favor to help convince the other side that, that they're in big trouble and they should settle this case. But the other sort of, you know, more subtle message that you're sending, regardless if, because a lot of times I think you, you know, you say you did a focus group and they think, oh, you just got a bunch of your friends together to, to tell me the case is worth $100 million or something. But no matter what, the other side knows that if you're doing focus groups, that means you're working hard on the case. And that sends the message that you're getting the case ready for trial, you know, that you might be getting this kind of, you know, what they perceive to be sort of like secret information that's going to give you an edge of trial. And that is only going to help your chances of potentially getting case resolved for uh, your client and for your firm. So there's a bunch of other just hidden benefits from focus groups. But I think, you know, we, we've covered a lot of them and it's something that should just be kept in mind, you know, for people to really be encouraged to, to do these for themselves because it, it helps a lot. In closing, if you could give one piece of advice to uh, lawyers out there who are, are having a hard time getting over the hurdle of doing focus groups on a consistent basis, what would it be? It just starts small. It's like anything. The impossible becomes possible by just, you know, taking the first step. You know what I mean? It's do the first focus group. Not unlike this podcast. You know, I'm like, oh, this podcast is going to be such a fail and we'll probably get like two episodes done and be done with it. But it's like, no, let's just do one, see how it goes. Okay, we did one. Okay, that was fun. We can improve a lot. Let's do another one. And that's not to say that uh, this is any great shakes yet. But the point being that with anything else, it's like you just have to start, you know, how do you become a trial lawyer? You try your first case, whatever that is. You know, how do you become a lawyer? You know, you, you take your first deposition, you, you know, write your first complaint. It all starts with small steps. You don't look at the end. You don't look at perfection. And, and you just tell yourself that, look, I'm probably going to, I'm going to get value out of this just by trying to put it together. Okay. And, and I might get a ton of value out of it. You know, but then it's just doing that first focus group, doing that first virtual focus group, seeing how easy it is to set up. And if, if nothing else, reach out to somebody, you know, reach out to us. You know, we're, we just did one as a favor to friends of ours recently. Now, I'm not offering to do focus groups for everybody all the time because that, that gets crazy also. But, you know, we're, we're here to help and, and ask somebody that's done it before, like, would you help me kind of put this project together or give me some insights or give me some advice or show me how to set it up? But just do that first focus group. You know, I think if you just do it, you see the light, so to speak. And then after you do one, you realize it's easy. And then it's just a matter, you know, same thing. We get busy. It's just carving the time out, just saying, look, we got to, we have to do one focus group on a few cases once a week or something like that. Or once a month, we're going to set aside two, three, four hours on one day and we're going to cover a bunch of cases. And it, uh, it's just always, unbelievably valuable. And I never ceases to amaze me after the hundreds of, hundreds of focus groups I've done, how valuable and helpful they are. And that I always like, I'm kind of energized afterward too. I'm like excited and fired up, you know, and especially in those cases when you feel like you're in a rut, focus group's great for uh, getting you out of it. Great. Okay. Well, awesome. I think we crushed focus groups over these two episodes and uh, 
you know, hopefully if people have questions and stuff, they'll message us or leave comments or something like that. Uh, there'd be a lot of uh, show notes. And, you know, I also do want to throw out there that you and I both have a lot of um, materials for focus groups, you know, invitations, language for requesting all that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe we can even throw some of that up on the show notes at some point in time, you know, for people to link to. But if people want it, you know, you guys can email or call us and uh, we'll share our uh, focus group file with you to, um, you know, help you get moving in the right direction. So, Greg, thanks for uh, moderating another great show here today. All right. Thank you, Brendan, for sharing all your wisdom. And uh, we'll look forward to listening, everybody. All right. See you, Greg. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.